This fall, we've been focusing on the theme of our grace-based relationship with God in Christ, what we call our covenant relationship. Now, in the Old Testament period especially, more than anyone else, the Hebrew king was supposed to embody that covenant relationship in terms of his own lifestyle and choices in the way he exercised power as monarch. For example, Psalm 2 calls the king the Lord's anointed and God's son. And as such, the king was to function as God's representative, to rule on God's behalf with justice and righteousness and compassion. Now, we don't know a lot about kings in the United States, at least not in our national history. But speaking of kings, I was in Scotland doing a pulpit exchange in the summer of 1981. And some of you would remember That was the summer that Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer at St. Paul's Cathedral. This was a national holiday unlike anything I had ever experienced or have since here in the United States. Now, we probably, most of us think that Super Bowl and the coverage it gets in the media is just a little bit overwhelming, you know. Many hours of pregame, of course the game... And, of course, extra commercials in the game and and all kinds of new commercials that people sometimes tune in just to see the commercials. Then there's the post-game show. Oh, my gosh. That's nothing. That that pales in comparison with the way the British approach a royal wedding. So, for example, um, coverage started very early in the morning, lasted into the very late night, and, of course, included the wedding in between. And BBC Radio... And BBC Television both were running that stuff all day. And after the wedding, of course, the couple come out on that iconic balcony at Buckingham Palace. And there are hundreds of thousands of people on the mall and in the adjacent uh, Green Park, especially, etc. And so there was a BBC interviewer. And he found an American woman. There are lots of Americans there, of course. Some of them who traveled just to be there. And she may have been one of them. But anyway, this interviewer asked, Well, as an American, how do you feel about today's events? And she looked wistfully and said, I wish we had a king. (laughs) Hello! (laughs) Perhaps she forgot that in George III, we did in fact have a king, in fact, a British king. But we chose instead to jettison the whole concept of monarchy to begin our experiment in democracy. Now, Dale shared with me a marvelous story that comes from uh, biblical scholar and British bishop N.T. Wright. He tells about a group of American tourists that had come to Britain, and they were in London. In fact, they were in the Houses of Parliament taking a little tour, and they'd seen the House of Commons, and they were outside the House of Lords when it adjourned for like a midday midday break or meal. And of course, members of the House of Lords are all titled British nobility. And so when the Lords recessed, this group of Americans in this tour group were right out in the hallway, just kind of blocking things. And one lord sort of escaped and got on the far side of the group of American tourists 
while friends and colleagues were stuck on the other side of the Americans. And so one of them, wanting to make a connection with his colleague, called out to him, Neil! And of course, all the Americans started doing this. <laughs> what? what do you do? What's the etiquette in the presence of British nobility? I mean, one wonders. I mean, let alone royalty. This is just nobility, not royalty. Wow. Well, back to our story about the worst king in Hebrew history, a man named Manasseh. He is severely critiqued by the authors of the books of Kings and Chronicles, probably the worst king ever, and yet the odd thing is that his reign lasted an astounding 55 years, which meant he was the longest serving of all Davidic monarchs. That means in the southern... Well, remember there's a united kingdom and there's Saul and David and David's son Solomon. And then there's a tragic Hebrew civil war and you have the ten tribes in the north Israel, the two tribes in the south Judah. And a descendant of David always sits on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital, of course, is Jerusalem. Among all of those Davidic kings, no one served longer than the most evil king of all, Manasseh. So that's strange, ironic. What's the Almighty up to? And the other thing that's strange is that evil King Manasseh's father was good King Hezekiah, an awesome king, a faith-filled king. And one of his sons, and one who succeeded him, was sort of one intervening, was good King Josiah. So, Around him are these superlative kings, and he's in the middle. Hmm. Well, uh, let's hear the story uh, as Jan comes to read it to us from 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, following the abominable practice of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed, He erected altars to Baal, made a sacred pole, as King Ahab of Israel had done, worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through fire. He practiced soothsaying and augury and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. 
I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. Manasseh misled them to do more evil than the nations had done that the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because King Manasseh of Judah has committed these abominations and has done things more wicked than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has caused Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such evil that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line for Samaria and the plumb line for the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will cast off the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. They shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their ancestors came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he caused Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. If you listen closely, you would have probably gotten that Manasseh has two major flaws. One is unfaithfulness. That is unfaithfulness to God and to the covenant relationship that Manasseh and the Hebrew people enjoyed with Yahweh. And the other was his violent and unjust treatment of his own subjects. In terms of idolatry, Manasseh allowed and even promoted the worship of gods and goddesses in addition to the one living and true God. That's the meaning of the phrases comparing him to King Ahab of Israel and when the writer says Manasseh followed the abominable practices of the nations, meaning the pagan nations. Abomination often signals apostasy, worshiping false gods, a violation of the first commandment, the most basic of all Jewish law. Now Manasseh's list of unfaithful acts is very lengthy. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed, which were sites for pagan worship. He erected altars for Canaanite fertility deities, Baal, and his consort Asherah, setting her carved image in the temple. He erected altars for all the host of heaven, that means astral deities, planets, and stars of probably Canaanite or Assyrian origin, and allowed them within the sacred temple courts. 
And finally, he engaged in magic with soothsayers and wizards and mediums. He was unfaithful to God, doesn't seek guidance through God, but through means of magic. And second, in addition to apostasy in verse 16, we hear that moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And besides the sin that he caused the nation of Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So rather than upholding the law of God, Manasseh uses his power for selfish ends, crushing the innocent with oppression and violence. As Old Testament scholar T.R. Hobbes comments, a Jerusalem where innocent blood is spilt from end to end is no place that God can allow God's name to dwell. And the king's sin and guilt infected his subjects, multiplying evil as his example encouraged them to act in similar ways. Now, what especially gets my attention is verse 6, where the writer informs us that Manasseh made his son pass through fire. Friends, that means he engaged in child sacrifice, a horrible foreign pagan practice which the law of God expressly prohibited. The writer of Kings reports it took place at Ben-Hinnom which in Hebrew means Valley of the Son of Hinnom. So King Manasseh embraced a terrible religious practice which the law of God prohibited. By the way, you can go to the Valley of the Son of Hinnom today if you ever visit Jerusalem. It's a valley on the southwest of the city of Jerusalem, which then intersects the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is the area through which Jesus and the disciples commuted many times during Holy Week as they went toward the Mount of Olives and perhaps the backside of the Mount of Olives to the little town of Bethany. They had to transcend the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley to come up then to the Temple Mount and the Jerusalem city limits. So that's, and this, this valley intersects with the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Hinnom. Why is that important? Friends, the New Testament Greek word most often translated hell from the mouth of Jesus is the word Gehenna. It's simply the Greek translation of the valley of the son of Hinnom, which means that Gehenna was Jesus' vision of the place where in future God would punish the wicked. Jesus uses Gehenna as a symbol of what God's judgment looks like. He pictures a fiery hell by referencing the site where innocent Hebrew children were burned in sacrifice to pagan deities. Well, clearly, under Manasseh's leadership, the kingdom of Judah had forsaken its covenant relationship with God. Manasseh and his leaders separated themselves from Yahweh and, in essence, sought a divorce from God, their husband and covenant partner. Now, according to the book of Kings, it's Manasseh's apostasy and it's his unjust rule which bring about a momentous decision by the Almighty to punish the entire nation of Judah and to wipe them off the map as a political entity for a time. God proclaims, because King Manasseh of Judah has committed these abominations, thus, therefore, says, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah 
such evil that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will cast off the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. This is all going to be accomplished by God accessing a foreign power to do his work of judgment and discipline. So like a dish, we're told Jerusalem will be wiped clean, emptied of its inhabitants. The buildings will be destroyed, including Solomon's temple. The dish will be turned over, meaning Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed. The priesthood will cease to function until after more than a half century, some of the priests which have been taken into exile in Babylon decide to return. And then the city is rebuilt. In verse 14, Yahweh says, I will cast off the remnant of my heritage, meaning that for a limited period, God will distance God's self from the covenant people by going through a marital separation. Other Judean kings will follow. God doesn't bring an end to the kingdom of Judah at that moment or at the end of the reign of Manasseh. But in less than six decades, God will, in fact, use a foreign power, the Babylonian Empire, to carry the leaders and other people off into exile to Babylon. Well, it's a pretty sad story, as you can see. So what, <laughs> what is the message for us today from this really, really uh, sad, tragic story of King Manasseh? Well, there's, an, there's, there's a message for the people who initially read this, and there's a message for us. And its initial readers knew that they desperately needed a righteous and God-fearing king who would honor, respect, and treasure their covenant relationship with God. We believe that in Jesus of Nazareth, that ideal king appeared in our midst. Jesus consistently sought to do God's will, and, and the Gospels report that on an occasion when he was sorely tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he could see his coming arrest and torture and probably death by crucifixion, he prayed, if only God would remove this cup of suffering and death, which is fast approaching. But Jesus ended that prayer with the words, yet not what I want, but what you want, O God. They also needed a king who would reign with justice and compassion, and rather than using his power to brutalize his own subjects, as did King Manasseh, filling Jerusalem with innocent blood, the only blood Jesus was ever, the only blood ever spilled around Jesus was his own, sacrificing himself as our sin-bearing Savior. So what the people yearned for, friends, was an ideal king, one who would be like a son of God, a child of God, who would reign as God's surrogate, God's representative. They hoped and yearned often for a, a great king like David of old. David, you could argue, maybe wasn't the best king, but he was at least one of those who get passing grades, according to the biblical writers. Partly because even though sinful and flawed, when David failed, he habitually repented, sought to change direction, to trust in God, and to repair the broken covenant relationship. 
so that the writer of the books of Samuel describes David as a a person after God's own heart. Friends, as the ancient Hebrews yearned for an ideal king, the eventual title given that figure was Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, meaning the anointed one. Just as the new king, the new Hebrew king, was anointed with oil when he was enthroned, so the coming Messiah will be divinely anointed with God's spirit to lead us in the way of faith, justice, and peace. So today, we join with Christians around the globe in confessing that in Jesus of Nazareth, God sent us the ideal messianic king, whom we confess to be God's unique, one-of-a-kind son and our sin-bearer and sovereign. Now, friends, next week, we begin the season of Advent. In that four-Sunday period, we prepare and wait for the arrival of God's anointed, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And as we'll hear next Sunday, while fulfilling the old Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, Jesus will also seal a new grace-filled covenant relationship between God and God's people. But now an enlarged people of God, not just those of ethnically Hebrew origin, but with all humankind. Everyone is included, no exceptions. And that relationship will be based on his sinless life, his compassionate ministry, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension. Let us pray. Lord, as we see the failings of most of the ancient Jewish kings, as well as many rulers in our world today, we too long for the ideal leader who will be faithful to you and will be good, just, wise, and kind. Thank you, O God, that in Jesus of Nazareth, we have the opportunity to know, love, and serve just such a sovereign in his holy name.